Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the One More Jump podcast by Rise Pole Vault. Today's episode is sponsored by Essex Vaulting Poles. Thank you so much to Essex for their support of the podcast. And if you want to head over to www.ust-essex.com and you can check out what they got going on over there, uh, which is a lot. Those polls are popping up all over the place now. So our guests today are Jeremy Scott and Ty Harvey, also known as Grande and Tito. I grew up watching these two pole vaults. Uh, and they had incredible accomplishments throughout their career. And um, I was just really honored to have them on the podcast. And we had great discussion, just incredibly smart uh, human beings, these two guys, and uh, very accomplished athletes. Uh, they're also very involved in Essex and the development of this this brand of Essex and the and the polls. The it was really really cool to hear about like what went into building these polls. And turns out that uh, there was a lot of input, you know, by real elite pole vaulters, which is uh, very very cool. Um, yeah, in this episode, I had COVID. I was really not feeling so hot. Um, but I was all jacked up on some caffeine and uh, throat coat tea. Uh, so I just apologize for my voice. It just sounded not so not so good. But I'm all better. It's all good now. And uh, yeah, so hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast with Jeremy Scott and Ty Harvey. You know, I've had to to edit some and things like that. So, anyway. yeah, just can't yeah. candidly. I've been pretty open about you know uh, the the human body, and um, and so you may have to edit some of my stuff because a lot of a lot of my story and background is has has some nudity in it. okay well maybe the video version of this doesn't need to be posted either i don't know (laughs) hopefully we keep it under control but anyway yeah so and and we roll right into it i think uh ty's nudity comment is a great way to segue into the podcast um but i just i don't i mean i followed you guys a lot whenever i was younger you guys were part of that 2000s like neo vault era so we got to watch you guys on neo vault and and follow you know not as much as we can follow people now for sure but i i kept close tabs on both of you and and really enjoyed watching your careers but i don't know i know more about jeremy's background because i was a division three pole vaulter a three baby yeah (laughs) and and he he was uh an outstanding i think you i mean you gotta still be the record holder at 570 or something right i think so yeah yeah well we didn't i didn't even know your name to be honest with you my uh my dad coached at north central college and we just referred to you as allegheny (laughs) (laughs) And and literally, I would like come to the workout, and they'd be like, "You hear? Did you hear Allegheny jumps jump five sixty? I'm like, "You guys got to figure this guy's name out, man! Like, <laughs> we can't just call him That's Allegheny awesome. the whole time." Uh, don't don't feel too bad. Um, 
some of uh, uh, one of my training partners' brothers didn't know my real name either. He just always knew me as El Grande, which is, <laughs> and it took probably about three or four months before somebody called me by my real name. And he's like, wait, that's you? That's hilarious. <laughs> and then Ty... Ryland, yeah. And then I know, Ty, I know you from um, having just one of my favorite vaults to watch. I just really enjoyed watching your vault uh, and how uh, you put it all together. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know much about you guys' background. So I don't know. Why don't we start with Ty and then just a quick synopsis? Because I can already tell that this is probably going to be one that goes for a really long time. So, like, where did you start? you know, your kind of path through, you know, to where you're at now. Mm, yeah. Much like, um, a lot of pole vaulters and especially I think. Today's episode is sponsored by Essex vaulting poles. We live for PRs. This is what Essex vaulting poles is all about. If you have been to any meets over the last few years, you've noticed a large number of yellow poles being used. And many of those are making the podium. Essex has changed the way poles are designed, engineered by joining carbon and glass, allowing for a smaller diameter, lighter carrying weight, and a more durable pole. Essex vaulting poles are trusted by many of the best coaches and athletes around the world to help them get over the bar. If you want to learn more or get a grip on some of these great poles, head over to www.ust-essex.com to find your local dealer. Maybe some congruency with Toby Stevenson. I grew up on a on a ranch, a cattle ranch, but um, instead of in the oil fields of West Texas, I was I was in the the Sierra Nevadas in California, um, kind of by Yosemite National Park. It is like yeah, it's a beautiful spot. I grew up in a little mountain community um, called Sonora, and uh, you know that whole little mountain town. It's it's gold mining is the history in that area, and uh, like they still have state parks that are you know like old timer you know mining communities that where you go as a tourist and you get to dress up and you know see how they used to mine gold and um, and all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, my dad is a cattle rancher and he's like the old school kind of cattle rancher, uh, does everything horseback. And, you know, like where Toby would say, you know, his dad is one of the smartest people he, he knows in the world. I would say my dad is one of the toughest people I know in the world. And he, he always had like bleeding body parts and broken bones and he would continue on with daily life. Like, like it was just, you know, normal and would never complain, like so tough. Anyway, yeah, that's my background. I grew up in a small town in Northern California on a cattle ranch. Cattle ranch, right on. And Jeremy? I'm from Norfolk, Nebraska, just a little town in the Northeast corner. And um, kind of listening to those stories, it's crazy. And I know you and your dad are really close. It's just kind of crazy the influence a dad could have. Uh, on on a kid's life um but i also look up to my dad he was a mechanic and um you know he owned his own shop and that's uh, really that's kind of how i got into i didn't realize it at the time but my love for mechanics and figuring out how things work and how to fix stuff i think is what really kind of sparked my interest in orthopedics which is what i'm doing now but 
um, you know, hardworking uh, family. And then, uh, um, you know, it was, it was tough, but going out to Allegheny, out to Pennsylvania was tough to leave, but I think pretty important for, uh, um, for me to kind of grow and develop into my own person and get away. And, um, but, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, I guess the background. I mean, it not, not much. I, I think one of the big stories was, is that I went to, went to college, actually chose Allegheny originally to play football. Um, uh, I was going to go to South Dakota. Uh, my, my sister went there the same time Derek Miles did. And so he was a big influencer to me early on as far as my pole vault career, but I was going to go play football there. And the offensive coordinator took the head coaching job at Allegheny, which is why I originally went out to, uh, to Pennsylvania. So how high did you kinda, all in high school? Not very high by today's standards, 15, two. Um, yeah, by today's standards, which, everybody didn't vault high. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just crazy. But like uh, I was the Nebraska state champ um, my senior year. And I kind of thought that was the way I was going to leave my pole vaulting career. I thought I was going to just leave it, leave it on a win and uh, right. uh, just go play football. And I knew at that point I kind of wanted to do something in the medical field and um, thought that. um an opportunity to go to Allegheny in a different part of the country with different scenery and different faces and, uh, to go play football and kind of get me, uh, set to go to medical school afterwards. Right. Right. And Ty, how hard, how high did you go in high school? I, uh, my senior year, I jumped five twenty. Holy cow. Okay. Jeez, yeah. Stud. That's legit. Yeah. For real. See, but like you're part from part of a California that like everybody, whenever people from where I'm from, and where Jeremy's from, think about California, maybe like it's like beach and like, you know, just the California surfer vibe type thing. But like that Yosemite area is that's a different, like that's a different part of California. You know, yeah. it's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, the weather is different. I mean, I was on our ski team, right? Like, and wow. I raced, I raced, like we, I taught snow skiing uh, at our little hill, right? 30 minutes from our house. It called Dodge Ridge. Actually, it's fun. I, I got to take my kids the last two Christmases. We've gone back to the ranch. I've got to take my kids to the same hill. I learned how to ski on and taught skiing to the little ski wee guys, the little, the little kids. Um, I got to teach my kids. It, it was like That's super cool. fun. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. Um, very Where did different. You, did you guys have like a lot of, uh, like, resources and equipment like because i i'm thinking of yosemite like so you're from sonora so yosemite like that's that's pretty far out out there right is it is it like a pretty i don't want to say desolate but just like kind of just a way away from everything yeah it's in the foothills in the sticks but um okay so resources so that that's an interesting word you know there's human resources there's yeah. Stuff. So in terms of supply, pole vault supplies, we had like horrible, like next to nothing, like, you know, Toby Stevenson level, you know, stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, he just, he says it so well, like that, that whole evolution of how he, how he became a pole vaulter is, it really rings true with me. Like we had very little resources, but we had in terms of people who cared a lot about the community and the kids, we had 
like uh, just a never ending supply of people who would put all their energy and effort into helping kids like me at that time. So we had a cinder track. I mean, we had a dirt track. You know, I ran, I, I, I ran, a, that's my kind of claim to fame. Uh, I ran a 49 on a cinder track, right? A 49, 400, which oh, I was geez. really proud of. Like, yeah. And that's hard to do on a cinder track. And I was like, oh, and that, but I didn't run, you know, I, I didn't, pole vault takes so long, right? Like you start the, you start at the beginning of the meet and, and you're the last people on the track and it's dark and everybody's gone or, you know, like it's, that's how the pole vault rolls in high school. And especially, you know, as, as you have a, a disparity in the, the level of athlete, right? You have like these six footers and seven footers starting to meet and then they're going up by three inch increments. And right. then you have a, like, you know, a 16 or 17 footer in the meet and it, and it takes a long time. Uh, so I didn't get to do all the other events. Like I really wanted to, uh, in, in, but we had in terms of like coaches in high school, you know, like Jim Rober, our head coach, he cared a lot about what he did and just dumped his life into the kids. And he was also an English teacher and really smart man. And, and then Adam Stratton, this guy. So I'm, I'm at the track. I didn't have a coach uh, like a pole vault specific coach, my freshman year, I'm out there just jumping and trying to figure it out with, we had two poles. Like we had like a, a yellow catapult. It was like a 15 foot pole and 160 and a, and a blue or black cat. Uh, that was like a, I don't know, something that didn't bend. And I was like straight pole. And I remember my freshman year, just trying to figure it out. And I, I jumped, I don't know, I don't know, probably like nine, 10 feet or something like that. And, and then, uh, my sophomore year, first part of track season, I'm out there trying to do it again. And uh, this guy, Adam Stratton shows up and he like comes up this little like bubbly, you know, happy go lucky kind of, kind of guy, young man. And he like comes over to the runway and he goes, Hey man, I know how to pole ball. Do you, do you have a coach? And I'm like, no, I don't have a coach. And he's like, well, do you want me to help you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so Adam Stratton was jumping for coach Fraley at Fresno state. And he was with that whole whole crew of guy, guys like Jimmy Jack Drath and, uh, you know, Derek Slick was down there and Frank Burke, I think was there. And, uh, maybe Dave Cox era, like right in that, you know, I think Dave was a little younger, but like right in that, right in that era. And, and apparent, uh, sorry, let me, and uh, I'm getting a call. Let me just end this for a second. How do I send a voicemail? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So then, so then Adam, he starts coaching me and he was 22 years old at the time. And I, I was like, what, 15. And, uh, we became fast friends. And then like the whole high school experience really changed for me because he and I every day would do something related to pole vault. Usually not, I mean, usually not pole vault, but like pool vaulting in the summer, almost literally almost every single day we would pool vault at his aunt and uncle's house and just like try to throw backflips and gainers and like just smack the water and keep going. And we go, you know, living, growing up in the mountains, we had tons of like rivers with big high cliffs and we'd go yeah. cliff jumping like almost every day in the summer we had, we, we would always be doing something. And then like he, he became an assistant coach to high school. So he had all the keys. Right. So like, and like 10 o'clock at night, we would on school nights, even we would get the keys and go to the rec gym and set up. They had these 
uh, old trampolines, old style, old style gymnastics where they'd run down a runway and hit this tramp and they would do flips and stick it like kind of like the horse, but it was on a trampoline. And we'd set that up in front of the, the basketball goals and we'd be doing flips and slamming. We put pads out and it would <laughs> That's be awesome. Oh, it'd be incredible. Like he and I, and then we'd set up gymnastics equipment. This was before like they outlawed all that stuff. Right. And, and you had to, ha- now you got to have coaches and all the appropriate stuff, but we would set up the high bars and the parallel bars in the gym with nobody, but he and I blasting, you know, Van Halen <laughs> and just, and just go to work. And it wasn't work. It was super fun. And we would just, play and play till midnight and then we you know go to school the next day and do it again all th- and that's like that's what my whole high school career was basically like um i kind of missed out on some of the like standard high school experiences because i was so just in immersed in this moment and and this world of of just experiencing your body and space and time in so many different ways we would rock climb and and I started paragliding and, you know, just all this stuff. Yeah. So I'll let Grande go. I'm taking, I'm taking too much time. Well, really yeah. quick before, before we do that, where, where did you go to college? I should know that, but I don't. University of Minnesota. I knew that. Okay. I really did yeah. know that. I swear. I just needed to be reminded of it. Um, yeah. That's interesting that you went from California to the University of Minnesota, but uh, uh, that's, that worked out well for you. Um so Grande goes to Allegheny and pops off at Allegheny. Um, so you were going to originally play football and you were planning to not pull vault. Yeah. Yep. I, um, I really thought that my, uh, my track career was done when, uh, when I, That's crazy. I left, um, I, I mean, I did, we have like the Cornhusker state games in the summer and, that was like, I didn't even pole vault then. Um, I went and just wanted to try high jumping and triple jumping one time. Um, and I don't remember what I did, but I wanted to go do it. But that was like my, the last time I thought I was ever going to pole vault. I was like, what a great way to end on a state championship. Right. Um, and went out there. I, I really, I really did football still probably my favorite sport. Um, to play. I miss it a lot. Um, but it's even at that smaller level, um, it's just a different game from high school. I mean, you're, you're up early for meetings. You meet together at lunch for meetings. You have practice by the time you're done with getting through the training room and practice and, uh, afterwards and going to watch film at, in the evening and studying the playbook, like at a pretty, pretty tough academic school like i was you know as a freshman just and being far away from home i, I was i was just pooped like i was i was kind of done and and this is the honest to goodness truth like the reason that i ended up going um going back out for track one of our, our one of our running backs was a sprinter on the track team and he, they found out that i'd pole vaulted and you know it was a little school so like the school record was it's only like 13.9 or 14.2, something really at the, low. At Allegheny? At Allegheny, yeah. Oh, wow. And we, we also, at that point, had a cinder track. Now it's a really, really nice track. But yeah, um, he he was like, hey, like you should come out. Like You could break the school record. You could win conference. And, and he's like, and then, like, 
I was like, yeah, whatever, whatever, not, not a big deal. And then he's like, the selling point was if you go out for track, you don't have to do the 5 a.m. workouts in the spring oh. for football. <laughs> and I was like, no way. Got it. Yes. Like, okay. Like that was the, the, so it's crazy that something so, so good turned out really kind of out of my own laziness or desperation of not That's wanting hilarious. to get up at that early. And, uh, I mean, at that point still, I mean, I grew, I grew about an inch every year in, <clears throat> in college still. And then um, how, how tall are you? Cause they, people are probably like, why do they call him grande? How so my official height is six, nine and three quarters. There we go. And so, <laughs> so when I, when I got to college, I was about six, six and then grew a six, seven at the end of my freshman year, six, eight. <laughs> six, nine as at the end of my junior and grew still like three quarters of an inch as a senior. And so like, I was just not the same person. I mean, almost from year to year as far as physically. And so by the end of, um, even at limited resources, we ended up getting some polls by the end of my freshman year. And I ended up getting second at nationals and jumped 16, two or three. Um, and then, I actually had a stress fracture. I broke my foot um, playing football my sophomore year, but got in. I got second again with sixteen nine or ten, uh, but coming from a short run, I think twelve steps. Um, and then my junior year, just like things really started to catch up. I jumped eighteen three as a junior, and then eighteen eight um, indoors of of my senior year and then had a hamstring injury that I didn't compete outdoors. So, Oh, okay. So I have always been under the assumption that you were just like, this D three is not good enough for me. I'm done. I need to get out of here. And then you went to Arkansas. So there was yeah, actually, I don't, I don't an like injury. to bring that up. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I hurt my hamstring and I, my time at Arkansas, I, I did meet a few good people, but not, uh, not my favorite experience there. Is that right? Um, yeah. I'd, yeah, I know about that. Time. I went to uh, <clears throat> Alabama my freshman year of high school or mm -hmm. high school of uh, college. Um, and it just, I was just like, it just wasn't, you know, for me. And, you know, that's, that's something that I think is a good thing for kids to understand, um, you know, because there's this whole divisions thing, like, you know, division three and division two and division one. And, uh, they think maybe the grass is always greener on the other side, uh, you know, at that maybe bigger division one school or whatever, but it's not always the case, you know? No. And, and I mean, I, I mean, a lot of my dissatisfaction there went back to, um, the academic stuff. There was a lot of personal stuff there too, as well, but, mm. um, I just, I couldn't believe the, um, the difference in the support and, you know, being the big fish in the small pond, even from the track and field side, like how, how much Allegheny would go out of the way to make me successful. And, uh, and, and, and that goes in the classroom and track and field, the, the mentorship from professors and, um, the way they would kind of work things around to make sure I was able to, to meet all my goals. And it just wasn't like that at, at Arkansas. Yeah, that was the exact same thing for me. Uh, I went to Alabama was like, I, you know, it was like all of a sudden and Ty, I don't know if it was similar uh, at 
Minnesota. I don't know how big University of Minnesota is, but uh, I would be in lecture halls of like 800 people. And I was like, hold on, this is the class? Like, this is insane. Like, I, and I was just like, it was like a concert, you know, for, for a class. And, 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 you know, I was like, there's not a chance in this world of me ever me- even meeting that guy you know, who was the professor, you know, and and then I, I transferred to North central and I I transferred, this is embarrassing to say, but I transferred with 16, 16 of my 32 credits at Alabama transferred. uh, Cause I just did so terribly uh, down there. It was embarrassingly bad. Um, But I got to North central and this lady was like, Hey, I'm going to do a private study with you. It's going to be me and you, and this is going to count as a credit, and and you just got to come in. And it was like one-on-one just to help me get back on track. And it was because of smaller schools, more manageable. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. How big How big is University of Minnesota whenever you were there, Ty? Yeah, so at the time, it was the largest or second largest. It would like kind of bounce back and forth between like an Ohio State Um yeah, it was like in the top top five for sure, largest schools in the country. Yeah, it was massive. Like I don't know, sixty five thousand student Whoa. student body. It was or some some massive massive school, and it's split uh, on three different campuses. So the Mississippi River, believe it or not, Mississippi River splits the campus on the west side, which is kind of the sciences. No, sorry, the east side, which is kind of the sciences and academic side, and then the 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 west campus was the art art campus and then and then St. Paul, which was a short bus ride away or a bike ride away. Uh yeah, I me- I have great memories of like on the bus route uh where buses could only go on this road. Uh, I was like a thoroughfare for buses. I would get on my bike and I draft. And I remember one time <laughs> the the bus driver stopped and pulled over and I'm like, oh it's funny I don't remember this stop being here. So like I slow down and I stop behind the bus and it just stays there. And it's got a, like a bus full of people. And I'm like, eh, what's going on? And he gets off the bus and walks back and politely told me to not not draft anymore. So that was the end of my my drafting career. But yeah, a huge campus, massive student body. Uh, you bump it, you, you never see anybody. Like again, Econ right. 101, thousand people, right? In this huge auditorium and you're watching a movie screen and it's a 7am class and it's, it's just horrible. Like, why would you ever want to do that? But, but I will say the athletic program was amazing. So the reason I went to Minnesota was because of a guy named Phil Lundin, who was the, the jumps coach, the pole vault coach and, and assistant coach and, and another guy named Roy Griak. And it's not because they were exceptional coaches, which Roy had a heck of a tr- track record pun intended, you know, both in cross country and track in like middle distance and distance and, and just an amazing man with an amazing life. Um, and I miss him, but, uh, but, but Phil really didn't have like the pedigree of a pole vault coach, but he was so great to talk to and so like engaged and, and like deeply passionate and caring and would provide, he's like, man, I'll observe and I'll do the best I can. Uh, I don't know much about the pole vault, but I will get you every resource you need to to jump as best you can. And he did. He he really and they have great facilities, like yeah, beautiful, beautiful outdoor and beautiful indoor, like yeah. cool, cool place. And um, and so I coming from a small town in California, 
Um, and, and knowing kind of how Cal- Californians are really California centric. Yeah, they used to be at least. I I don't I haven't been there in a long Maybe. time, so I don't. <laughs> yeah, right you know, now and it's, it's like a little different. <laughs> well, like yeah, it is. It is the flip. It's yeah, not. the whole thing is a, a lot different. But but at that point, like nothing better than California existed yeah. in my little my little pod of people. And I'm like, well, I mean, how do you know that? Like, where where have you been and what have you done? Right. You know, and I never got a clear answer. So I kind of wanted to go somewhere I had I knew nothing about and uh, just explore. Like, well, what's out there? And it started like the journey through the Midwest for me. You know, yeah. I I went from the West Coast to Minnesota, where I met like a, a crazy slew of people that that are still my closest friend, like some of my closest friends, right? Uh, through track, but also just academics. And you know, I like like the Stevens brothers, Marty and Dan and Lori and Jason Rathy. I mean, Booner. Michalik, Bobby Johnson, all these guys, you know, like I can just go on and on with the memory of, and these guys taught, I wasn't very academic, right? I still, I still am not, not super academic. I, I have a poor memory and I'm not that, I'm not that, uh, uh, you know, just academically inclined. However, these guys taught me because you're in these classes with like a thousand people, right? Like right. you don't learn anything in class and I'm, I wasn't a good reader, so I didn't read much. And so these guys would take the time to help me learn what I needed to know and like really explore the academic side of school. And it wasn't, if it wasn't for them, like I'd still, I still couldn't talk and write, you know, I, at least I can hack my way through life. But, but these guys are really responsible for that and just great thinkers. Like I, I gravitated toward this group of people who were thinkers and it, and it actually fits with the pole vault really well. A guy named Martin Erickson was at the University of Minnesota and he was jumping in the mid 18s. And like I, I met a whole that's the other cool thing about Minnesota was they they could import all the foreigners like from Scandinavia because yeah, right, it was right. cold all the dang time yeah. and nobody else wanted to go. So like <laughs> we had we had gosh, like Benjamin Benjamin Jensen, who was the world junior decathlon champion at the time. We had Glenn Lindquist, which was who was also a decathlete. We had Stefan Strand, who was a high jumper, like one of the best in the world at the time, like, like tons of like foreign. And, and as it turns out, like this was just an added benefit in the summers, they'd be like, well, we're going home to compete and you can come over and stay with us. And so like my first experience, oh, it was incredible. Like you, and I would get on these like C circuit meets, you know, and get to compete in front of stadiums and people in Europe. And it was like, and I met then I met like Patrick Christensen and like Renz Bloom and Lars Bergling. All these Europeaners were there, and I got to meet and just become part of their family. And uh, that's awesome. Minnesota was a great, a great kind of yeah. Just I don't know. It just like you know whatever it's just it is. Odd. Like I I I would not have pictured somebody like going from California to Minnesota. This I mean nothing nothing against it. I just like I feel like that's a just a different unique transition. You know, usually you go the opposite way. You go from Minnesota to California, you know, like yeah. um but I don't know. I just find it fascinating that that you were like, yeah, I'm going to go from California to Minnesota. And then you made it work and, and it, and it worked out for you. It's pretty cool. I remember the recruiting trip. It was in the spring and I was like, Ooh, it's like 20 degrees. Like this is as cold as it must get, you know? 
so naive, right? And I'm like, man, it's freezing, but the sun was out and, you know, the snow on the ground was like melting. And I'm like, okay, I can can handle this. That was kind of a big concern. And my brother brother, uh, lives in Minneapolis and uh, he, he was like, dude, I got, you know, 24 inches of snow coming my way in the next, you know, 12 hours or something. I was like, you know, it's like, it just gets so cold. Like, Yes. he'll be like yeah like wind chills like negative 40 and like it's like next next level stuff you know in chicago so, it gets cold too but yeah. it doesn't get that cold well it gets really windy of course in chicago with that wind but but yeah. minneapolis so my freshman year grande you, you could maybe look this up while we're talking this is phenomenal like um we had record-breaking low temperatures my freshman year i remember being in the dorm on the third story and having a cup of water open the window and like chuck the cup of water out <laughs> and before it hits the ground it's like ice it's like turning into little snowflakes oh yeah and it was like god i want to say it was like you know 30 below without wind chill that was like straight temperature 30 oh, yeah. below and i yeah. come, you know like the coldest i had ever experienced in the mountains in california was like 20 you know right right and for does those who get, say, does it get that cold in that in that mountain range, uh, like up towards the towards the top? Like, does it get below zero up there? Oh yeah, it will. Yeah, at the higher okay. elevations, it, it definitely gets below zero. We would take my dad. Again, my dad's old school, right? So we so in the summers, one of my jobs was at a pack station. It's called Kennedy Meadows. It's up in the in the Yosemite area. Yeah, I know and, Kennedy Meadows. Oh, you do? I know, the, I know the area. I'm fascinated with that area, like the John Muir Trail and and like yeah. all that that goes through. I'm a big backpacker, and it's one of my uh, one of my trips that I want to want to take someday. So, well, hit me up before you do that, and we'll talk. Yeah, but for I, sure. Yeah, I would love to. I, I explored all that country in high school. I would pack, um, like you know, the owner of that place, uh, Willie Ritz, was a really good friend, and and they went to high school together with my dad. And my dad owned a pack station in Bear Valley at that time before I was born. And anyway, so long history of horses and packing mules and stuff. So in high school, I would pack a lot of these like corporate groups where Willie would get overwhelmed with like these people that want to go in the mountains and and he would need help. And so I'd go up and help. And I'd take these packers, you know, these with my dad, we'd pack these, this group in, you know, 10 miles into the high country and to an alpine lake that's pristine with trout and fishing and nobody else there. For like yeah. a week, we'd stay there and we'd cook them food and, you know, w- you know, make sure all the animals were fine and fed and safe. Because you, you'll shackle the horses in these meadows. It'll be like a box canyon where there's only one way in and one way out. And you'll, and you'll shackle the horses at night so they can't go too far. And then you're like, and you'll put a bell on them. So they ding, ding, ding the bell and you can hear right. it in the canyon. And then you'll like it, you know, three in the morning, you'll go find them and you'll kind of bring them back into the canyon. They'll start to like work their way out of the canyon. And then without like, without a horse, it's a long walk back. Yeah. You know? So, absolutely. so anyway, and then you'd cook for them and you, you know, guide them on the fishing and like all that whole experience in the mountains was, was a big part of my life. And, 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 uh, man, I, I miss the mountains for sure. Being in Austin, Texas now, like th- those mountains definitely call me and, and, yeah. uh, I have to go back every once in a while, you know, that's the classic John Muir quote, right? The mountains yeah. are calling and I must go. Um, yeah. I, uh, yeah. So fast forward to, so Ty really quick, what, did, how, what was your personal best in college? 
Uh, 55. I jumped 55. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then Jeremy years was like 70 something. I'm seven, 18, eight. Yeah. Okay. Got you. Yeah. Um, so how do you guys, Jeremy, we'll start with you. How do you end up at Bell Athletics? Um, so I kind of talked about it a little bit ago with my sister, um, went to South Dakota the same time Derek Miles did. And so, and kind of once I fell back into pole vaulting, he was an easy contact. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd talk, um, you know, of course he was done with school, but just kind of starting off on his, uh, uh, professional career. And I remember um, the first time that he went down, I think he met Earl and the, and kind of the crew at, at uh, the Drake relays and he went down and uh, I just remember how excited he was about his trip down there. And, and he's like telling my sister, like, tell your brother, he's got to go down there. And then I, then like, I ended up talking with him. He's like, dude, you got to go down. You got to go down. And so, um, in between my sophomore and junior year, I mean, I, I had the injury, but I was really kind of disappointed with uh, kind of coming up as a runner up two years in a row. And I was like, that's not going to happen again. Like, it's not going to happen. And that's kind of the thing that pushed me over to the edge that, like, I, I'm going to go down there and get help. Like, I don't care if I'm running from a short run. Like, I I, I know I can jump higher. I'm going right. to go and, and uh, um work with the guy that's going to get it out of me. And so I went down there and just, just loved it. Kind of the same deal. Just was energized. Uh, I was down there for a camp, uh, probably kind of the middle of the summer. I had enough time, like about a month later, I went back for another one and called my college coach up. And I was like, Hey, like, I think I can come down. I think they'd be okay. If, if I, uh, would keep coming down here is that okay with you and so um he was like yeah like we we had kind of minimal coaching and uh, minimal resources and they're like let's we we'll make it work and so what i would tend to do is i i had all my classes scheduled for monday wednesday friday and i would usually like the week after a test like they it seemed like they always fall in the same week right it's just kind of how right how things go. And so on that week after a test, I would skip Friday and skip Monday and kind of the coach would let my professors know he's doing something with track and go basically leave Wednesday after class, go down Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and drive back either Monday night or Tuesday. You would drive? Yeah. From yeah. Pennsylvania? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like Whoa. 15 or 16 hour drive. But you know, it's expensive private school and division three right. budget. So you weren't, <laughs> you weren't paying for poles to go and fly in and stuff like that. So, wow. um, so that's what I would do. I did that almost every month, um, for the next two years for my junior and senior year, I go down for every four or six weeks. So how does it work at bell? Like when I've never been down, I need to go down there sometime. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, you hear all different types of things. Um, like you go down, you work with Earl and then is there like a place for you to stay or do you just like stay in a hotel or, or like, what do you do? Yeah, it, it depends. So, you know, we've those camps for a long time. And when I first went down there, there were like 40 kids in the camp. 
Sorry about the interruption. We had some sort of Wi-Fi dropout or something. Um, technology is incredible at times, but then at other times, the Wi-Fi drops out. So back to it. Um, so we were talking about the 40 people. Uh, yeah. So it's like the, the first time the I went to a camp. Stuff. Yeah, it was like 40 people. And so I remember um, going out there. It's in the middle of the summer, middle of July. So it's like the overnight lows are like 95 degrees with Ooh. 95% humidity and <laughs> and like trying to find a spot. So there are some air conditioning. There's two like bunk rooms that uh, they've been redone now. They're nicer now than what they were when I went. But like they're air conditioned. But I, I went in there for like a half hour the first day I was there and just like felt like somebody cracked you in the face with a hot, wet towel when you walked out. And I was like, it's just not worth it. And so I went and kind of I'd sleep out on the floor on these little pads right in front of the huge fan. You've probably seen in some of the videos, like the big fans that we barn have fan, big barn yeah. Fan or whatever. yeah so it was like right smack dab in front of that on a like just trying right. to like acclimate to the heat and the humidity right um but that's kind of i mean when i that was how i first got there then as i kept going down then i'd usually sleep down there in uh in those bunk rooms and for a little while actually daniel ryland lived um in that apartment in the building. So uh, after I'd been coming down for a little while, I'd stay up there in one of those rooms in an actual bed and you know, just kind of made it work. Like it, it, uh, I got so much better, even if, you know, if I, if I was struggling with something, it's like I could go down there and figure it out. And maybe I didn't jump higher while I was down there, but within the next couple of weeks, I knew I was going to jump higher. And, and it was, you know, it was kind of crazy. It's like, but, I didn't even have a cell phone for most of that time. So it's like, I just remember like singing at the top of my lungs to the radio for my own entertainment. And it's like, like there's a few areas where I knew like, I can't wait till I get like going through Columbus. There was this awesome kind of rock station that I loved. Like they'd play corn and yeah. uh, Godsmack. And it's like, yes, <laughs> like this station's awesome. Like corn I couldn't wait Godsmack. for like that. It's That's like that two hours of, of radio time. And then there was another one kind of in central Kentucky that was um, more of like alternative. And so it's like, I kind of remember I did it so often. That's like, okay, like I've got this, this section of time where like, I got to let my voice rest. Like, let's get some water, like save it kind of <laughs> like you're doing yesterday. <laughs> so I can really be on my game, even though I'm by myself in my car and, that's so just funny. going away but it's like yeah i mean I, I you'd go down there it was always worth the trip and it was great to see um at that point i think you were living there full time mm -hmm. and or just about ready to to take off i think i can't remember i know you were there for a little bit but seeing jeff and jill and kelly and there's always like just a recharge and you knew you're going to get something good out of it and fix whatever you're struggling and uh you know, eventually, I mean, I, at that point, I was kind of set on going to medical school and had got everything. Like I took my MCATs, I'd done all that stuff to do it. And um, like, like I said before, like my junior year, just I got so much better um, and kind of brought it up to Earl's like, hey, like, would it be, would it be okay? Like, if I'd come down here after I graduate, and he goes, oh, yes, like, thank goodness. Like, 
I didn't want to ask you because I didn't want to screw up the medical school thing, but I'm really happy you did. So yeah, like when you're done, come like, keep wow. coming down here like you're doing and, and we'll, we'll have a place for you when, when you graduate. So. Wow. That's really crazy. Like that commitment to like drive that, that many times. That's really, really crazy. Good for you. And then Ty, so how did it work with your transition to Bell? Mm, yeah. Th- so I, I didn't know Earl other than a few videos that I had watched, you know, like, uh, growing up, like, you know, the Boobka videos and the Earl Bell videos and stuff. So I really didn't know much or anything that he had a training center in Arkansas. I didn't know where he lived and really knew nothing about him. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Um, I had this girlfriend that broke my heart at the end of college and I was kind of like, well, now what do I do? And, um, and so there was at nationals, there was this guy going around, um, who said, Hey, we're starting this club in Indiana called the Indiana invaders. And it was, and it was mostly like a a running club, but he's like, we're going to do some field events at IUPUI and stuff. And so I just, after college, I threw, I had a motorcycle. I, that's all I had. And, um, my roommate had a van. So he like threw my motorcycle in the van or actually on a trailer behind the van. And I had just a couple bags of clothes and I went down there and I remember we pulled into the parking lot of this apartment where we were like the invaders were like supposed to be, you know, put up and all this stuff. And, and it was, the sun came up, we slept in the car and the sun came up and it was like full ghetto, like full on ghetto cars on blocks, like all that stuff. Right. And so like I check in and I know nobody and there's no place. Like I, I don't have, I had like just under $300 to my name at that point. And so like, I had no money to pay for anything. And, and I called Gray, I called a guy that's like heading this up. And I'm like, man, is there anybody that I could stay with for the next few nights until I find a job? And he's like, oh yeah, I'll hook you up with this guy, Phil McMullen. And, and so I, they, Phil is like my, still one of my best friends today. Like I, every time I, anyway, he, one of my best buds and he's like, yeah, sure. You know, he's a, he has a fiance and they're in an apartment and they're like, yeah, sleep on our floor. So like I start sleep, I have my camping gear and and that's all I need. Right. So I'm on a thermorest and a sleep bag. And, and that's how I, I, I was introduced to Indianapolis and I started training there, but all I had was five full run poles that Minnesota gave me at the end. So I had no short run poles and they didn't have anything, zero pole vault stuff. And so I started training with Phil as a, like, he's a decathlete kicking my butt and like the four, we're doing repeat 400s and stuff like yeah, like completely not pole vault related, but I didn't know. I, so right. anyway, we're training together and I'm getting really fit, but I'm not pole vaulting. And every time I try to pole vault, I land on the runway because I don't have any poles. I'm in like, a, I have five big poles. That's it. Right. And so and then like I started expressing my frustration to, to our leader and he's like, man, there's this girl as part of our club named Shannon Gallagher. And she went down to this place called Bell Athletics in Arkansas. And I'm like, okay, you can't, and you didn't have internet, right? So like, I didn't have a phone with internet, so you couldn't look that up. So like, I just, I'm just like, okay, well. And so I talked to Shannon on the phone and Shannon Shinona is like, hey, I'll talk to Earl. Why don't you come down? And so, so I did. So like, I, I rode my motorcycle down there and the first experience was amazing. Like I was really fit. And I had no clue about pole vault. And like, we started at two steps and I'm like, what in the world? Like, I'm not full running. Like what's going on? 
And, and like, I made this super quick progression and just, I was like PRing the first day I was there and Earl was amazing. And like the facility and like, it felt like home to me out in a bean field in the middle of nowhere is, is where I grew up and what I was comfortable with. Like it just felt like home and like redneck engineering was, you know, predominantly employed as the main method of doing everything. Right. And I'm like, I fit right into that. And I was like, building stuff for him and welding things together and building platforms. And he had these hurdles, which I don't know if he still does, but made out of PVC. And Earl is freaking genius. That guy can make stuff from nothing and make it look and work really well. He's, he is incredibly industrious and resourceful. And so like, I just kind of fit right into that mold and I came down and then I went back and I struggled up there for another month or two or whatever it was. And I came back to Bell Athletics. And after the second trip, Earl's like, what are you doing? Like, just move down here. Right. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. So I went back to Indy, which was it's not like a nine hour drive. And I, and I didn't have a car. So I, I went to an auction and bought like a 1960 something uh, Volkswagen bus that wouldn't go out of third gear. Uh, when I bought it, I realized, well, this thing has a really bad exhaust leak and it won't even shift out of third gear. It doesn't have reverse clutches going out. So like I get it home that night and the next day, like I, I bailing wire the, the shifter link back together and I can go through the gears now. Clutch is still going out. I put my motorcycle inside the bus. <laughs> I take out the middle seat. I leave the middle seat on the sidewalk at the ghetto uh, hotel, <laughs> ghetto apartment <laughs> complex. And I put my motorcycle in there and I throw my clothes in and I start going toward Arkansas. The clutch goes out in the first mile. And so every, every so I drove from Indy to Jonesboro without a clutch and every gas station I'd have to, I'd have to find a gas station on the side of the road. that was kind of downhill or at least, at least flat. And I would coast in, I turn off the car, I turn it off and I just, Shifter into neutral and I coast it in. I fill it up with gas and then I put it in, in first gear. And in a Vita bus, the gearing is low enough that the starter will actually start it in first gear. Um, so like, you know, you turn the key and it's like, rum, 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 and it, and it takes off and you can start, <laughs> you can start it in gear. So I did. Uh, and you can't do that anymore because you got all these buttons and technology and stuff. But back no. then you, you didn't, you could do it. And so I, I was so cool. And then I made it to Jonesboro and I remember I get there and like one of the, the next morning I get there late, whatever. And I sleep on the pit. And the next morning I, I remember Earl wakes up and he gets his cup of coffee and he comes out he has his office downstairs. <laughs> and he like, I, I go outside. I'm like getting my motorcycle out. Cause that's my mode of transportation. And he like, he's Hey Tito, you know, or I, he didn't call me Tito then yet, but he's like, Hey Ty, like that's a nice motorcycle. And I'm like, thanks. I'm really proud of it. Like the 1974 CB 504. And he looked at it and he's like looking at it. And I'm thinking like he's admiring this motorcycle. And he's like, hey, um, if if that doesn't get sold in, in like the first week, it'll end up in that ditch over there. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. So no motorcycle. I thought he was joking. And he's like, no, I'm serious. And I'm like, okay. He made cool. you so, sell it? Oh, yeah. Like immediately. Immediately. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. So I sold that. And then we had the the Volkswagen we had the the van and I got it running better and better. I'd slowly work on it. And, and then I remember one day we had this thing, Chad Harding was in the office. He, he was working in the office for Earl and we had this, 
bungee, a couple of the bungees that we used, um, you know, for pole vault bungees. And we made this huge slingshot and we were shooting potatoes into the rice field across the street there in front of the house. And then I'm like, okay, let's take this to the next level. So I get my bus and I rip up and down the road and they're trying to hit me as I drive by going as fast as that (laughs) bus would go. And so they did, they, Chad nailed it right on the side and it put a huge dent in the side of this old bus and, uh, and it made a loud noise and is hilarious antics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Earl Bell is still like, man, he's like a dad, right? Like he really is like a second dad to me and he is the most amazing, intuitive, intelligent person and coach on the, I mean, he's just unbelievable. He's, he's really magic. And, you know, the guys that would come to Arkansas to find that magic uh, and would leave quickly um, because of Jonesboro uh, would, would weed themselves out. And what you were left with was a group of people who, who had the self-motivation and drive to make it work in a place that they thought was, was lack, you know, like Jonesboro, Arkansas, that not the greatest place to live. I thought it was. I thought it was a great place to live. And those people were so dedicated and devoted to what they did that magic happened. I mean, so magic. So you're saying that like Jonesboro really almost like itself was like a filter. Like it kind of was filtered yeah. everybody through it. And it's like, it okay, really you're coming down here to get better at the pole vault. You're chasing after this dream. And you know, you've heard rumors that Earl's the guy who's going to get you there. But then you go through this filter of Jonesboro, Arkansas, and then whoever comes out on the other side of that actually really wants to, you know, do it and take it to the next level. What was, why, why was Jonesboro? I've never been there. Like I said, I have to go, but uh, why was Jonesboro like, why were people turned off by it? Uh, Man, I, I think there's Monday. a couple of layers to that, right, Ty? I mean, so it, it's grown a lot since since uh, I moved there. Um, but you've got, I mean, first of all, it's a small town. I mean, I think when I first started going there, it was like 50,000 people, which didn't seem that small. But I feel like everybody that lives there, for the most part, is from there. So it's like kind of hard to crack into different friend circles outside of Pole Vault. Luckily, yeah. we had such good people there that it wasn't a necessity. But then you also have like, young we were all single at that point and it's a dry county so there's no bars there's no rest like no chain restaurants so it's like what are you gonna go do there's not um tons of stuff to go do if you're you know the party animals like it wasn't a very good good spot for the party animals to go correct i mean no it, it it wasn't but like i think even if you weren't like a full party animal like even to go get a a good steak. <laughs> like there was one place you could go. Right. Yeah. 501 club. So, I mean, it's, it, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely obstacles, but like to Ty's point, I mean, you had guys that, and, and magic, like it was a palpable electricity that you could fall, feel walking through the door. Really? And I think that's part of why it was, it wasn't really a thing. It wasn't that big of a hindrance to drive those 15, 16 hours. Cause like you just felt it walking through the door. I'm kind of getting goosebumps thinking about it now. Just that impression. You just felt it walking through the door and 
you know, you'd see Jeff Hartwig doing his workout first thing in the morning and Kelly was around and then Ty. I had, I just remember one of the first weekends I was there watching, um, watching Jeff jump and he jumped like 19, one or two. And then Ty jumped like 19 feet in practice and Derek came in and jumped 19 feet in practice. And, um, it's like later in the day, Chad jumped 18, eight and you're like, (laughs) (laughs) what's this guy doing? How did he make the Olympic team? Right. Like, (laughs) right. And it's just like, that's what you, and Kelly would jump 15 feet and Jill Schwartz moved there about the same time I did. And like, it just was unbelievable and like how we all got along and could we were all very different people but um complementary to each other right it's like and and ty talked about like we just made things work our company motto when i was kind of the guy in the office was the leaders leaders in low tech it's like we just made stuff work right right you know the thing that i found fascinating about uh bell was like you guys didn't go in there 580 guys like you guys then that's the thing is that sometimes what you find nowadays and i'm not i'm not saying this is always true but it's like okay somebody jumped you know 580 in college and and then they you know go and then they you know continue to jump 580 somewhere else you know there there was a development that happened at bell which was so cool and it was like almost like if you heard of somebody going there like hey so and so moved down there it's like oh man well that's the next person you know like it's like because there was you went there as a good collegiate pole vaulter you know but you but you left there you know, being a great post-collegiate pole vaulter, you know, 580s, 590s. So that's what I found very fascinating about it. Because, like, Jeff was, like, what was he, like, a 35 guy in college? You know, like, Ty, you said you're a 55 guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek, what what did Derek John? He said it on the podcast. Yes, uh, 17, 4 or 6 in college, I think. Yeah, yeah like 30, a 30, 35 guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just, I don't know. I just find that very fascinating that that there was development that happened. It's easy to just keep a person healthy and just have them do the same thing they've always done, you know, and just jump the same heights. But it's really hard to develop somebody, especially if they've jumped over 550. Like developing people over, like that have crossed that threshold, It's it's a different different type of thing so i think it goes back to i mean ty you can jump in too but you think it just it really speaks to earl as far as you know he was always you emphasize your strengths and you kind of chip away at your weaknesses and so you and and he kind of the opposite he can turn kind of nothing into something nice but he always simplified things to the point where it just he could explain it in a way that you had to work on one thing that would just have such a big domino effect and then you put that with people like had like ty said that just were willing to go through anything to achieve their dreams and it just was was kind of a this an unbelievable atmosphere and an unbelievable training group to to where people could achieve those things it's kind of like but a I perfect he, storm I mean, though 
you know yeah like, i mean it, but it I, was, I think yeah. none of that would none of that would happen without earl i mean i think ty would agree that right he just, right just so good at, at getting you to focus on the on the thing that mattered most to you as a jumper yeah yeah that that's like that's well said grande like earl has a few high level key philosophical components of his coaching that are always there right like the right pole the right grip the right run like that's the fundamental right like you you have those are the first things you have to do and if you do that then like the rest is kind of butter but he would have tests like okay if you if you think about what the you know kind of the most important component of pole vaulting is it's speed that's it like it, whoever runs the fastest usually wins the meet right yeah. and so earl had a, a test for that which was the 15 meter fly and we would and and that's like he was he always wanted us to know how fast we are at a certain given moment in our training um you know progressions and that, and pretty much like you knew how high you were going to be able to jump based on how fast you could run and once that's you dial without a yeah, pull yeah that's with, that's okay. without a pull yeah cuz the conversion right like and and Earl is always about the weakest link like Grande said you you just you, all you do is you find the weak link and you strengthen it so like when coaches ask me like hey what are the number one or two things you work on with every pole vaulter i'm like well i have to respond to that with another question like what's their weak link you i can't tell you what to work on um without knowing where your weak link is right and I even explained to the kids that I'm working with now, like, like I really want you to understand what the, I want you to think about what weak link in a chain means. Like, like, cause you can say the word weak link and never, you know, just kind of glance over it. But really, truly, if you have a big chain and you hook it to a tractor and another tree or something, and you pull that chain, one, only one of the links will break first, right? Wow. Yeah. And, and so that link has to be strengthened. But what happens when you put that link back together and weld it stronger than it was originally? What happens when you pull on the chain again? It's going to be another one that breaks. A different link breaks. Yeah. A different link breaks. And so on and so forth. Like throughout oh. your entire career, it's always the weak link. And, and Earl was so good at like picking out that weak link. Like, and you sometimes they're elusive. These links are elusive, right? Especially at the higher end where you're just nitpicking. And he would figure that out, usually without telling us he figured it out. And then he, and then he just like introduced these things and it would be like magic. And all of a sudden you're, you're like on to the next thing and you jump a PR like a one inch. And that's the other thing like, you don't move the bar up at six inches at a time, you don't move it up a foot at a time. You get a one inch PR. And you, and you do that 10 times in a row or 12 times in a row and you're a foot higher in the air. Right. Never yeah. did, did he move the bar up uh, more than an inch. I mean that, you know, no matter really? what. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So what, uh, what is it like about, what do you think? What do you, so do you think that Earl was, when it's all said and done, he is the reason for all of that because some people will say well it was just like there's a lot of good athletes there and you know things like that i i do think it was a perfect storm of mm -hmm. like a really good coach that has that was kind of groundbreaking in having 
their own facility. Like if you, mm-hmm. you could definitely say that he's like the, the godfather of all of these things that are popping up around the country right now. Yeah. Because he was doing that. Mm-hmm. He did that before, you know, anybody that I knew of did it. Um, you know, but this kind of perfect storm of like, oh my gosh, there's like a pole vault training facility. That's crazy. Oh my gosh, there's a coach there that knows how to coach. Whoa, that's crazy. Holy cow, the best pole vaulters in the country are training there. Whoa, that's wild. And then it just started circling and then just all of a sudden it turned into what it turned into. What do you think somebody is going to have to do nowadays to recreate that? Mm. Man, it's a hard one. <laughs> it's a really tough question. I mean, like you said, right? They, you have to be at the right place at the right time. So, like in Earl's age and his progression as a coach and his progression as a former athlete, like that timing had to be had to be what it was. And then, and then you just had a bunch of. I mean, I think there's still people out there like us, Grande, and you know the group that we were with, like Daniel and you, Kim, and Lon Badeau and Grande and Will Jones <laughs> and Kim Becker and you know and Kelly Suttle, Chad, Jeff Hartwig, like all these people that are in my memory um, who were magic and and did amazing things. Derek Miles, I mean, all these people, right? Um, you had to have those people, but I think those people probably still exist. But the the magnetic force and pull that happened to get us all in that one place in that magic time, I think, I, I think is hard to recreate. I think you like the universe has to create. It'll that never sort of- be the same, and I, I I I will never ever be able to. You know, nothing will ever be the same as Bell Athletics. Like that was that was so special. Like that was just such a special time. And I, I don't know if you guys realized it, you know, like while it was happening, like how special it is. But I mean, looking back on it now is like, like, does that ever happen again? You know, like who knows? Like you just don't know, like if something like that would happen again, the things that are fascinating to me, to be honest with you is, you know, we ask these questions, uh, you know, my brother and I kind of ask ourselves these questions like, okay, what, like, what would we do if we allowed other elite vaulters to train at our facility? Like, what would we do? It's like, well, it's in Chicago. Like nobody wants to, you know, like live in the cold and like this and that, and, uh, you know, but I like that idea of how it was in Jonesboro because I had never thought about that. Like it doesn't, it, it takes people that really want to be good. And if you like have to have palm trees in order at your facility, you know, you don't really want to be good. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so the location kind of, you know, that, kind of takes it out of it because Jonesboro was not in a prime <laughs> location. No. You know? I, the time that I was there, um, even before I got there, when I was coming down as a collegiate athlete, there were a lot of athletes that were a lot better than me that had already jumped a lot higher than me that didn't want it. Yeah. They just didn't, they did not, not that they didn't want to be good. They just didn't want Jonesboro. They didn't want to deal with, not air conditioning and having to help chop wood and bring in firewood and help with <laughs> building those hurdles. And I think, I think what that did is it, it kind of 
cut down on, I mean, there, I don't think we had somebody that had a sense of entitlement um, mm -mm. in the group. And I think that kind of contributed to, um, to the overall atmosphere and kind of the encouragement everybody gave to each other. And um, I mean, you could sit down and uh, talk with guys that, I mean, you're really competing against each other. There were enough guys there. There's only three spots on every team, but it's like, Ty wasn't kicking my my mark out of the way to gain the edge, you know. Like he, we were watching each other's right. mid marks and um, filming helping each, each other, other and filming each other, coaching each other. You know, hey, can you come pick me up at the airport and that type of stuff? Because that wasn't an easy thing either. It was an hour drive to Memphis, and so I, I don't know. I think I think a lot of the the difficulties or the the lack of glamour kind of weeded out but like you'd said is kind of its own built-in place filter and the people that were maybe maybe the entitlement i guess kind of got filtered out and i don't know i don't know how you duplicate right. that i mean it is always i mean we had people that wanted to come down there that just didn't necessarily fit and girl would pull the plug like no it's gonna mess really up, yeah that was my question we got. that was my yeah. question is were there times that you guys had to just be like kind of like hey this person's gotta you gotta go yeah i'm not gonna say names but i remember at least two or three times really yeah so yeah earl early on like earl would consult with jeff when when jeff was like the main guy there and there wasn't a huge group really he and jeff would kind of sit down and talk about potential candidates, right? Coming in. Like he'd invite people in to come jump all the time and pretty much anybody could come jump, right? And right. he'd help. But but there was a level of, okay, is this person, does this person fit our our community? Because really it was more about the person. Okay, so I'm going to step back one. One of the things I think was really special about Bell Athletics during that that area that era was that there there was like Earl it was like a, I've never been a part of a commune or anything like a kibbutz or something but <laughs> but Earl had created this environment where there was no selfishness or very yeah. little selfishness and it was all about sharing and giving and community effort and and like everybody pitched in and did stuff like whatever they could offer they did and and it was such a like communal effort whether and and that that extended you know beyond the pole vault pit right we all helped each other get better we would catch steps for each other every run down the runway we would alternate and catch steps and take off steps and film like we had our stations and we would just alternate through that because we we wanted to contribute and get better and learn and be a part of this thing and that extended into the work life like here's how weird this was now looking back i'm like God, I can't believe that Earl did this, but so like he had his business, he was selling pits and poles and, and he'd have these camps and he, and we'd help him with the camps. Right. And he'd make money. And like, I lived in the building for a long time and I didn't have a job and I wouldn't make money. So I'd go do stuff as much as I could for him during the day. And I'd go paraglide with you, Kim in my car, like towing me down the road. And, and we did these things for Earl, but but really, he didn't ask anything of us. And then I'd be like, shoot, like I got to buy some groceries. And I'd go to Earl and I'd be like, hey, I'm out of money. And he'd be like, here, here's 300 bucks. Go get yourself some food and whatever. Like the money and job and like, like we didn't keep track of that stuff, right? It right. just, it, everybody just contributed and was a part of, you know, our 
community, our little group. And I think that was one of the really special things is that he was so selfless, self, anti-selfish, whatever the word is, selfless, selfless. selfless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was just, he just gave and gave his energy being a big part of that. And you're only, you only have so much of that, right? And he was, it was like magic era because he was at the age and the time in his life and the people that were there, everything just lined up to create this amazing community. And he gave all of his yin and yang. I mean, like he just, he spent his whole life force energy on our group. And as it, as it, as it tailed off and that, and that community sort of started dissipating. I, I had met Amy Acuff and my wife and, and I had moved to Austin and, you know, everybody started like kind of migrating away a little bit and it just sort of slowed down. And then Sammy took, and then Sammy took on Sam and Henry. I mean, you know, and, and Drew was the oldest at that point, but like Sam and Henry were, were ankle biters. These kids, they were like little kids and now they're like a full blown adults and doing great things. And and have like stepped into that role and kind of kept it going. And, uh, and it's great, but I, it'll never be the same because Earl is who he is. And, and like, you can't recreate that. But if I had one bit of advice, you know, for anybody trying to recreate that, um, I would say that the community and the giving the amount of energy and, and like thought that Earl put into it was second to none. And without that, it, none of it would have existed. No question. Yeah, I th- I think I think it's that, and I think that there has to be, it has to be a the right place where it properly weeds out the bad people on its own. You mm-hmm. know, the people, the people, uh, and the place just kind of like if you're a bad apple, you just will not want to be there you know and that that's what's so cool and and if you get those you know the right people together uh you don't really have to worry about bad people coming in because they just they come in and then they feel like oh well i just don't fit in here these are a bunch of really good people so like yeah and then they just get out you know and that 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 was important that was important and i think that that was a huge thing is is uh you know making sure you have the right people so that naturally lends itself to um you guys helping me get earl on the podcast i've tried (laughs) (laughs) and and it is uh it's not easy so any tips on getting earl on the podcast uh, may have to do a tandem deal with with him and sam and henry or maybe maybe jeff or something like that well, it, I was thinking I was outside I, pressure on him. Yeah, right. I uh <laughs> I've 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 talked with Sam a little bit and uh he was like I'll pitch it to him. And he pitched <laughs> it to him. And it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> did I mean, to drive down there. Yeah, drive I was down there say. and do it live. I I think yep. that that is uh to be honest with you, I think you know, I may I I would really like my brother Luke has been down there a couple of times and vaulted really well down there. Um, and enjoyed his time and and Sam is always Sam's the only one who I've ever uh, talked with but uh, he's always been so incredibly kind uh, to me and my family Um, you know and I think maybe I go down there and if it happens it happens and if not I still get to make my pilgrimage 
to Bell Athletics at worst case scenario, you know. So I don't know. I think that that's probably the proper way to do it too, just to uh, you know, for who he is, you know, I do you see Earl on a Zoom call? You know, yeah, like, probably not. Yeah. You know? Yeah, not very long. Yeah. No, you no. do it while he's out hitting golf balls on the side. It'd probably be the yeah. best way to do it. Right. A case, a case of Coors Light, and and a, and a nice long evening Bush light upstairs. Now. Bush Light now. Bush, he's because it's cheaper. But he did a double. He said he did a double blind taste test and liked Bush Light better. Well, I heard, Man, I heard that they like the same. Oh, it no, is, no, that's yeah. key, no, yeah. it's Keystone and Coors. Right. Well, Keystone Keystone like, yeah, are like the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, I think that that would probably be, you know, something that I'd need to try to figure out how to do there. But um, anyway, hey, before we get into this next section, do you care if I go use the restroom real quick? No, I'd no, like to I do also. the same thing. Yeah. Yep, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Back in business. Hey, Grande, uh I I don't want to uh to brag too much i know you're not too far north of me but it's like 80 degrees out here in austin today and it sounds terrible it's february it's supposed to be 60 degrees colder yeah no i know you're the snow guy you like that cold weather but man i'm i love this 80 degree weather i'll take it all year all day the other the other bad thing about that is that means rougher nights on call people get out and do stupid stuff when it's warm (laughs) <laughs> yeah no, yeah, no question all, it all closed up uh in the uh in the winter time okay um so let me hold on before we start here blah, blah, blah. i'm just looking at my notes here um i mean there's like a million and a half things that i've wanted to talk to you guys about uh so <laughs> let's go i have to i have to like you know taper it down to you know something that is uh you know more manageable um but before we kind of get off of uh your vaulting careers um what poles and grips were you guys on just because there's a lot of like crazy like uh people that love those uh metrics yeah, so Grande, you start first because it's oh, most okay. impressive. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're going to be crazy. Well, not really because you're like, how did you only jump so high? Um, the biggest pole I ever used was like a 10-6. Um, it, was a, it was a 5-30 um, that Guild made for me, and I ended up gripping 17-3. It was in a beach, it was in a beach vault, and like the... <laughs> It was my biggest pole in the bag and like that, the box just kept sinking and I still ended up, I think I only jumped like 18, six or seven that day because it's like, I kept blowing through. I didn't have any more poles. It was like, that's like, you could see like, holy cow. Like, I guess a deep box does make a way big difference. So for sure. um, For sure. So what was like your regular, like what was like your regular money pole? Yeah. So, so kind of when I, um, got going kind of the peak of my professional career, I would pretty routinely use um, like 11.2 or 11.4, 5.20. And that's, you know, we had a little different pole set up. So it's like, I didn't need the extra long right. stuff. I'd grip, I'd, I'd still grip right there at 16, 11, 17 feet. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. All right, Ty, what about you? I mean, it, uh, so at the like peak of my career, I was jumping on five tens, um, mostly gripping just a little over five meters or right at five meters. And, uh, the factory flex probably would have been somewhere around like 12, like mid 12, something like that. Okay. Okay. Got you. Okay. And then that brings me to Essex. Um, cause Ty, I, Jeremy, I don't know, like with you, were you mainly like uh pacer? So, yeah, I, um, I jumped on kind of the, the two big ones. So in college, um, just because of where we were spirit was, um, what we had. And then when I jumped 18 feet, then all of a sudden we had the opportunities to, to switch. So from my, my junior year, all the way up until the last year of college or last year, of my professional career, I was on pacer. Okay. Okay. Got you. And then Ty, for some reason, I feel like you had like different poles in your hands, like at all, all the time. Is that true? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, so I wasn't fortunate enough, um, throughout most of my career to have any sort of pole sponsor. So Earl had a bunch of old poles in the, in the, in the, you know, in the building that I would weed through Jeff Hartwig had like a whole bunch of old, I mean, everybody that is there like had scrap poles and I kind of put together a series of mismatch poles for my first set and including some old spirit poles that Steve had built for Earl way back when. And, um, uh, man, I just had, yeah, huge variety of poles. And then, and then Gil started building poles for me specifically on, uh, you know, requested by Earl and that was Earl's fastback design. And they were, they were really good poles and, but they were heavy to carry because a lot of fiberglass at the bottom of the pole, but those were really, really good poles. And then they started, they kind of, they, they made a decision that they were going to, that they were going to build the FX. And I jumped on the, the first series of those FX poles and I just couldn't make them work. I, I really struggled. And I mean, they had all kinds of technology and science behind it, but it just, it, I just couldn't make it work. And I tried for a while, but, uh, but ultimately when we had asked them to continue to build the fastback, they, they couldn't, they didn't want to any right. longer. And it was really hard. Like it's all custom stuff and it's just so time consuming for, for what, for like, and they're giving the poles away to guys like me. Right. Like it didn't make any sense for them. And I understand that business decision, but, but, um, but I was like, so dialed into that, that design that, uh, I, I really couldn't give it up. It was, you know, and so that's when Bruce kind of Earl and Bruce got together and started talking about this for those, pole. You, for those who don't know, Bruce, Bruce, who Caldwell, Bruce Caldwell. Okay. Um, he, he was the founder of Essex and before that he had fiber sport. And I mean, he, Bruce has been in the game forever. He was a pole vaulter and he, and he built poles for Earl and all the guys back then. Like he did, he's, he's been everywhere and done everything. The guy he's really, he'd be an interesting guy to have on the podcast. But so Bruce, um, Bruce was really kind and gracious enough to be like, Hey, I've just started this company. Let's get these guys the poles they need. And he and he, and I went up to Dallas where he had the factory, and I built my first set of poles with Beto. And 
This is the Essex. Awesome. This is like yeah. the origin story of Essex. Then it is. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. All right. Yep. And that's where it all started with Bruce, and and then Earl would help help design those poles, and uh, and then Bruce would build them with Beto, and then we'd end up with a good series of poles. And I was the first 19 footer on to jump on Essex pole. I, was, I jumped 19 feet, a little more than 19 feet on Essex poles, and and that held up until Sam Kendricks. Uh, went yeah. ahead and just amazed the world with his abilities, which was interesting because those polls, um, that was when UST got in the mix and started and started helping Bruce. And that was like the transitional period. And, and then from there, UST has just with their resources, their engineering and their material science, like, man, it's a, it's at a whole nother level. Yeah. So that's the thing that I'm curious about because, you know, my dad has run, uh, ran camps at North Central College for like the last 30 years. And we, we had helped him coach those, you know, every summer. And there was two Essex that we had. This was back in like, I don't know, like 2009, 2010 ish, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and, and I kids would be like, hey, you know, I got this one. And I'd be like, ah, just you know, put that one back. You know, you don't you don't want <laughs> you don't want to jump on that one. You know, and and I it wasn't I knew it Earl had some influence on it. So it wasn't like I was like, you know, they couldn't be good or whatever, but I just like to me, whenever a kid jumped on it, I was like, that's not what I'm looking for right now. Um fast forward to you know, right now I'm about to call up Essex after this call and give him my credit card for another huge Essex order. So, so like, excellent. What, <laughs> what changed? Where, where did it go from like the pole that I don't want any of my kids to jump on? I just probably just give it away to like having it where I'm funneling a good amount of money into these things now. Grande, you want to start? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess in 2015, this is Bruce had sold a company to, I don't know when he sold it. Was it 14 or 15? Probably 14. Somewhere right around there. And I sold a company to UST and, um, they, they were kind of going off the way that they had been doing things with Bruce and, um, kind of put in their own inputs. And I very distinctly remember, the phone call because this was you know i was kind of trying to ramp up for another olympic team in 2015 and 2016 and um don rare called and and actually i think maybe you called me first and said to be be aware that uh they may be calling and i was like you know i just i i don't really i don't want to change anything i feel like everything's going good i had my set of fastback poles and um, was confident. I'd, I'd been jumping well and had been coming back. I, uh, had a knee injury that I felt like I was coming back from, and I just didn't want to mess anything up. And so I kind of was real short on the phone. And, um, thankfully, um, Don called me back again, I don't know, less than a week later and said, Hey, this is, you know, sorry to bug you again. This is, let me tell you, kind of what we're looking for and, and we'll start off with what happened with golf and he had said that they had developed with their golf shafts kind of the theoretical best possible golf shaft 
you could like the math couldn't get better. The materials couldn't get better. Um, it was as good as it could be in the simulator and mathematically, but they put it in the player's hands and they hated it. And hold on one one second, one second, Jeremy. So people are probably confused that don't know what UST Uh, is. UST Mami is the golf chef company and they ended up buying the pole company, um, kind of based on, you know, Bruce saw that they had stuff that normal pole companies can't buy as far as materials and resources. Gotcha. So Don is the special projects manager, very, very smart engineer. Um, and uh, anyway, so he was talking about the golf golf clubs and they ended up saying, okay, like what, what can we do? And all the players would talk about was feel. I want it to feel like this here. I want it to feel it release here. You know, the, a bunch of golf terms that I don't know, but right. kind of like some of the stuff that like, when we're talking about pole vault poles, like I want it to, you know, feel soft, like bend early, bend easy. Then right. I want to feel, feel that scoop and kind of get like a lot of it was like, huh? Yeah. That kind of, yeah. I use some of those same words too, talking about. Yeah. Pole vault. Yeah. And so anyway, he said, he's like, you know, we, we were like, okay, we kind of were willing to design something off of feel kind of in the back of our mind saying, you know what? we'll do it just to kind of appease them. But we know that we've got the best thing you can do like with formulas and mathematics and kind of some of the same stuff that I remember hearing from, from other pole companies, like, Nope, this is as good as it gets. This is what our testing says. This is, this is it. Right. And anyway, so with the, he put those shafts in the player's hands and sure enough, like the ball's going further. They love it. It's going straighter. They, like, and you start getting players to switch over to the shafts and he goes, Hey, I, you know, I think we're going down the same road with our pole vault poles. It's like, we know what we want them to be, but what, what do we need to do for feel? Like, what do you jumpers want to feel? How do they want things to go? And so it's like, when he, when he said that, or when he asked me that, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is what we've been wanting companies to ask us as athletes like wow what do we want to have in our pole vault poles and then you kind of get a little more in depth like you know we've got this many engineers on staff we've got structural engineers we've got material engineers we've got all of this material you know they've already discovered that not all carbon's good for pole vault poles not all fiberglass is good for pole vault poles and you got to make things match i was like oh my gosh it's like music to my ears (laughs) like this is what we've been wanting people to to ask us and put into pole vault, uh, poles. And, uh, so like when we had that conversation, I was like, absolutely. Like, this is something that I can get behind and I want to be a part of. And I think, you know, everything I know about pole vault poles is from Earl. And it's like, this is something that we can kind of improve on this fast bag design, take the same principles, but improve it with materials. And Ty had already mentioned that they're so heavy. Um, you know, we can cut down carry weight, we can make them stronger, we can reinforce things, we can make them more consistent because of the, the manufacturing. We also make aero shafts for Easton, the carbon fiber aero shafts. And like those things, the tolerances go out to like eight decimal points as far mm-hmm. as like how precise they have to be. So we yeah. can do that with aero shafts, like pole vault pole should be easy. Right. Um, and so like you get all of these things that they're good at and they're actually starting to ask athletes like what do you want in a pole vault pole 
you know, like, holy cow, this could be, this could be something special. And, you know, I, I went with them for a couple of years and then we finally convinced Ty to, to jump in. And so then when, when we got together, it's like, it just seemed like things really, especially now in the the last couple of years, um, you kind of see the fruits of our labor from those first few years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so why, why did they choose Ty? I'll I'll ask you, why did they choose you two? Like it it was just because you had already done that fastback, uh, pole or, or you were involved with that. So the, the guy really, uh, at, at the core of the success of Essex is Don. I mean, I don't think he gets enough. He's, he's a really intelligent engineer as Grande said, but, but he's also, he's listened. I think he's listened to every single one of your podcasts, like four times. He, He called me the other day and, and, uh, and we, and I was like, you know, I've never met him before. And we were on the phone for an hour and a half. I was in the Walmart parking lot waiting to go into Walmart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We talked for an hour and a half. He was such a cool guy. And just, uh, you could tell that he was very, uh, just intrigued with it all. You know, he has no pole vaulting experience, no pole vaulting background, but just very intrigued and just fascinated and, and curious about, about it. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, keep going. So so I was at the time, uh, when I met Don, so I had, I had jumped 19 feet plus on the, um, on the Essex poles and Bruce was, would tell Don about, you know, who, who to talk to and like who, what, what's up with Essex. And, and, uh, I remember I got a phone. So I was a paramedic in, in the city of Austin for a while. And then I had just left my paramedic job and I was selling, I was a sales guy for paramedic software, like, uh, what they call EHR electronic health records. Grande knows all about those and probably hates them. And so <laughs> I was, I was selling software now at that moment. And I was up in Dallas making visits to fire departments and I get this call from Don Merrigan. He's like, Hey, I'm Don. And I want to meet you and talk a little bit about pole vault poles. I'm, I work at Essex and whatnot. And so I remember I sat down at lunch with him and had a beer and, and we started talking about, it. and he's like, what's the most important things. And all he wanted to know was like how he could do better at the, at, at manufacturing and, and what, what were important things. And I said, well, first of all, you got to turn a pole around in like two days. You got to get a poles out the door in like two right. days. Right. And he like laughed. He's like, Oh my God, you're not serious. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. Like <laughs> you have to do that. And, and so like that, that has been the goal. We're still not there, but we're, we're really getting close. Lee. Yeah. I has done an amazing job at like refining production and really taking ownership and making it work. And each year we get better and better. And even with the, like the amount of growth that Essex has seen over the last like five years or four years is I don't know how you could expect to keep up with that, like year over year kind of growth. Yeah, and- you guys are putting a lot. I mean, I talk with uh, Brian Monshine a lot, and uh, he and it's it's really cool to watch the the growth and to hear about it. But I mean, you know, you get more and more clubs and more and more people involved with it. That means more and more orders, and that means more and more, you know issues trying to get them out and things like that it's going to be hard yeah you know yeah. but it is what it is and uh yeah it's, it's yeah, cool to watch we're uh, the team is up for the task i mean like i said lee has 
you know, really established himself as like a, a leader and and a person who wants to make it all happen. And he he bends over backwards all the time. Everybody in the back. And Don is constantly involved um, at the high level. And when we need him in the minutia, he's there. And uh, it's really a fun team, like another kind of magic moment in time, I think. And and so that day that I met Don, he's like, hey, we're looking for a sales guy to help sell these Essex Bowls. Would you be interested? I'm like, I can't. But I know this guy. His name is Grande, Jeremy Scott. You should give him a call. And that's when that happened. And Grande, it was just perfect timing. Like Grande, again, he couldn't do it right away. But eventually, he found himself there. And then with his knowledge and abilities like then you saw this like great momentous push and that's that's really when the magic started to happen is when grande showed up so who sold uh kendrick's the first essex bruce sounds actually bruce bruce beto and bruce went to his house and uh, at the time he was having trouble with poles breaking uh not not essex poles and so they went and and marnie his mom said the most important thing for me is that my son doesn't get hurt. Can you build a pole that won't break? You know, that's how the story goes. And, and yeah, right. from there, yeah, that, that's well, right. I think that's, that's like the big thing is that I talked with uh, Don about it is like, you know, the ability to be able to, to gain the trust uh, in carbon fiber, you know, like of, of the public and, and stuff like that. And so like, that's been something that if you pick up an Essex pole, it like, it feels very like robust, you know, like it feels hardy. Like it's not heavy, obviously. And the diameter is really small, you know, which are, are two good things, but it doesn't feel, uh, you know, brittle or frail, you know, like, do you guys have any idea like how, like how it's, how they're trying to get rid of the stigma of carbon. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. So I'll start Kyle speak more to it. He's got more of the engineering brain, I think, but um, I mean, it, it, one of the things that I learned early on, it's, you know, I, I mentioned it a little bit, like not all, not all carbon's good for pole vault. Like these, the materials have different stiffness and stretch properties and, um, deformation properties and and then on top of that they've all got different resins impregnated in so like you have to have the right fibers with the right resins and then you never use just all all fiberglass you gotta or sorry you never use all carbon you gotta add in fiberglass and just because you're adding fiberglass that doesn't mean that's gonna work you've got to have the right type of fiberglass with the type you know similar bending properties so you don't get delamination and shearing and and it's got to have the right type of um resin and so all of that stuff is so far you know beyond and that's why i'm so happy we have the engineering team and the materials team that we do because it's of the how many materials we have tie 85 95 different types of materials that we use in all of our different businesses wow you know, not of not all of them are good for pole vault poles. Not all of them are good for golf shafts. Not all are good for. You got to take the specific material properties, the resin properties, the stretch, the deformation characteristics. All these things that are so far beyond what you would normally think about. Like, okay, it's a pole vault pole, but you got to right. make them all work together. And then I know that we do studies on our poles to make sure that you know our our layers are laminating. We're not getting porosity. We're making sure that the resins are are bonding together to make it really one solid layer. So 
I think it's, you know, the research and development. It's 100% having the right team. We keep coming back to this. It's always about the right people, right? You got to have the right team with the right specialties. You got to all work together. Right. And so I think that's what we've been able to do. You know, this is what we want to feel in our pole vault poles. Okay, let's take it to the materials, guys. We've got, you know, okay, we can handle this. This is the material that needs to be in this part of the pole. And you put that to the structural engineers and they make it all happen. So. So during the development of these poles, who who was were you guys testing these or like I was I was the test pilot for a lot of it, at least really? on the bigger poles. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah which and was I was I, I've got a set of poles that's pretty freaking cool with the different things that go on inside of them, but we set on was, the best design. Yeah, Grande was the next level tester. I was the original tester. And, uh, that, that was like when Bruce was building poles with Beto and, you know, doing their absolute best with really, really limited resources. And so I, I had jumped on those and, you know, they were pretty good poles. Uh, consistency was an issue. Like, you know, I'd I'd have one or two really good poles that I loved and then kind of like the consistency. So that was a big thing was consistency. And that, that comes down to having resources to buy a a whole bunch of mandrels, for example, and material. So you have consistency among, you know, your suppliers and all that. And, and then, and then the engineering and like, then, then that whole next level grande got to test and they took it, they took it. It was pretty fun. I think that progression. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Ty, you were, you were a part of, you were a big part of like kind of the Bruce Caldwell and I'm sorry, who was the other person? Abedo. The engineer Abedo. at the time was Beto. Yeah. Beto. So you were you were kind of like part of that, and then once this UST thing happened, then Grande, you came on, kind of. Is that timeline? Um, yeah, we're, I don't. Ty, you were you were not necessarily officially with the company, right? You're just an athlete sponsor, but did did some side test pilot work. It sounds like. I yeah, guess that's he, what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah and then and then he'd read i don't he'd been away from pole vault for quite a few years mm-hmm. um until and i was still i mean i was kind of at the end of my competitive career when they contacted me and in, into at the end of the 2015 season <laughs> right yeah that is uh that is really crazy to see that evolution because it really has turned into something, you know, that if you'd asked me 10, 12 years ago, you know, like whenever I had those two at, at the pole vault mm-hmm. camp, I'd be like, there's not a chance in this world, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and now it, it's really, really crazy to see how, how far it's come. So in the early days, whenever you were trying to, onboard people to these new polls like what was your pitch um, so early on yeah early on it was you know that kind of not too dissimilar from what i told you is that you know these are poles that are made kind of by pole vaulters like this is we made them with what we know is important we want them to be durable we want them to have certain bend characteristics and really overall we want it to be consistent i mean tide mentioned that you know he had a couple of favorite poles and i think everybody has that and it took me it didn't take me too long working with earl and working those camps like you'd flex poles and they wouldn't 
be the same, even though the labels were the same. And, you know, you'd every kid, it's like you get three or four kids in a camp that were like, oh, like I, I do really well. And then I get to this one pole and right. I can't use it. I'm like, but even though the numbers say it's, it should be the next one, just things change. And, you know, I know now it could be a mandrel size. It could just be construction size because it's easy to kind of cut corners for manufacturing purposes. Right. Um, and so that was one thing that we emphasize is we want them to feel the same from the day you start. If you're, you know, in sixth grade, picking up a pole for the first time, you can stay on our pole and it's going to feel the same every single step of the way and having the engineering team and the resources to get like the mandrels, like Ty had said, and making sure you've got consistent jumps. I think we've done pretty good at, at having minimal, um, jumps or gaps with the way our poles work. And so, so that's kind of how we, we went at it. And then the other thing, you know, we knew that it's going to be hard to get a guy that's jumping 19 feet, 19 and a half feet to make a change. And so right. we were, right. We we're like, let's get it to the guys that, you know, if we can get them early, they're, they're not going to want to change anything else. Cause we know they're the lightest. We know they're the easiest to carry. We know they're the smallest. You, and you, get them kind of on our poles and then they some go someplace else and have to carry a spirit pole or an all fiberglass pole. And <laughs> we knew they're going to, they're going <laughs> right. to hate it. And right. so that's kind of the other thing we, we wanted to, to get good coaches that understood pole vault with clubs, with young kids. And, and, uh, um, and I think it's worked out. It's, it's in the process of working out. And now, now we got guys that are, at that top level that we got them early and, and knew right. they weren't going to want to change because we felt we had the best product on the market. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely come up quite a bit and, um, you know, you made, made me a believer. It's, I, I actually, whenever I was first talking with Brian about it, like I had not jumped in a long time, maybe like six years, something like that. <laughs> And I was like, doggone it, man. I, you know, he was like, man, they're really good poles, blah, blah, blah. He wasn't like trying to be pushy or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget why we had gotten on the phone. Maybe we were talking about the podcast or something. And, and, uh, and he was like, and I was like, you know, I wish I could have just jumped on him. Like I just, you know, just so then, and, and he was like, Hey man, I can send you some out. And I, <laughs> and I was like, for real. And he was like, yeah. I was like, all right. Let's do it. So he sent them yeah. out. And because I, it's going to be hard as I get older, you know, in my, in my career, um, you know, I, I want to be able to recommend something that I've felt, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Cause it's, it's hard to, yeah. to be like, yeah, that's the best poll. Yeah. And it's like, how do you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Like, and and well, that was, I think something good too, early on, especially early on, we had a, pretty long leash and a pretty good budget to send people polls to try kind of risk-free right you know give you know give me your give me your kids your best kids give me a range we'll send you we'll send you 10 polls that you know 10 of your best athletes can use and if you don't like them no no sweat we'll we'll pay you to ship them back right and and we knew we knew that it was from our end pretty low risk because we we felt pretty strongly they were going to like them yeah that's the thing is that if you're confident in the product then it's like you know it's it, it is pretty low risk so what what ty what is your involvement now like currently 
with yep, uh, so, with Essex. So when well, so when Grande was full full on sales with Essex, uh, he started school, and I kind of I stepped in, and we and he and I worked together for a, a few years there and made some magic happen. But then, but then um, when he started school, he had to step back a little bit. So so I kind of stepped up my time commitments to Essex and, and really, you know, kind of running, running the sales side of things. And then, and then, uh, and then moonshine and Mike Vanny, uh, Brian Monshine, I call him moonshine. And we just kind of like fill in, fill in our, our niches, like our little roles are get we like, I don't know. We just fit well together and, and kind of, uh, work, work our strengths, uh, into each other's, weaknesses you know like we just we just fit well together and brian brian has been a, a massive massive i think help in in what he brings to the table and yeah you know uh grande still contributes even though he's in medical school and doing the things that he's doing as a doctor now right. like he still contributes whenever we need some high level information or like you know hey how should we approach this we call grande he's like the doctor you go to the doctor for the problem right? and he fixes the problem <laughs> And, uh, and I, and I mostly now I've kind of more or less backed out of a lot of the day-to-day sales stuff that Brian does and Mike does. And I'm, and I'm, I more help, um, the elite athletes. So I, I mainly, I'm mainly just helping the elites and, and then, um, I answer a lot of the emails still and, and I do help some of the sales, you know, people will call me and usually to like troubleshoot. So like a dealer will call and say, ah, oh, my, you know, my, uh, my shipments lost in somewhere. I can't find it and we'll help track it down. Yeah. There's shipping and logistics is like just a nightmare. And it's, it's becoming more and more challenging with pole vaulting, like internationally, like rent. So now we have this great team, you know, like Lars and Renz, Don and I flew over to Europe and met with a bunch of folks and, and landed on Lars and Renz to run Essex Europe. And that's been an amazing, you know, addition to the team. And they're, they're doing, they're starting to kill it. It's going to really neat. It's going to be neat to see how they open up Europe and introduce them to Essex. Right. And then like Hiro, Hiroshi over in, in Japan has done, like he, he runs, he found. And it's amazing. Like that kid, he's unbelievable. And he has a team. He's like developed a team and is working with our, UST Japan division to bring poles to Asia. And it's just like, wow, this, this team is just like working really well together. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a fun little ride, but mostly I'm just doing elite stuff and then some emails and like troubleshooting. Right. Right. <clears throat> Where do you guys see uh, Essex in the next, you know, 10 years? Do you, think, do you still see yourselves? So the one thing that I, one of the things that I like about Essex is they make pole vaulting poles. That's what they do is they make pole vaulting poles, right. you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, and, and that is one thing that I, I enjoy about that is, is just the, you know, the focus on that, you know, the focus on, on, you know, the product the just the singular pole vaulting pole product basically um and then i also enjoy that whenever i'm talking with people like i'm talking with brian monshine who i vaulted with 
you know, like after college and, and competed against. And then, you know, I talk with, you know, Jeremy Scott and Ty Harvey and like, these are all like kind of household names in the pole vault world. And, uh, I enjoy that. Um, so I, I want, I wonder though, how does the future of Essex look? Do you guys stay, you know, it's, it's hard to predict, but, um, I just am curious about where the direction you guys are going is. Yes. So I'll start with that one. So the, the relationships that we've developed in the partnerships with like Richie, for example, Stephen Griffey mm-hmm. at Richie um, really speak to, I think our future, like he does, he does pits exceptionally well. They're like Richie so pits. Good. They're got so one. good. Yeah. And they're durable and they, they're just, they're great landing systems. And so like, he does that. Like, that's what he does. Right. And he does it right. really well. And, and it doesn't make a sense for us to start importing pits or like building pits or anything like that's a whole nother model and stuff. And we're, we're focused on like one of the facts that blew my mind when Don was introducing me to the new USTS was like, yeah, we, we buy like a 40 foot container full of carbon every month. And it goes to our, you know, carbon <laughs> like that's football fields of carbon right yeah. like like crazy amount and like we we work in composites and we and we do fiberglass and carbon fiber composite material and that's what we do like to me like you do that and you do it well and that's and that's like the focus when you start getting spread thin it becomes more more of a challenge and so that's the model. And I think that's what I see continuing into the future is partnering with people who do their thing really well and, right. and letting them do that thing. And then we're going to keep doing our thing and let's work together to, to, you know, like Richie, you know, Steven will send out a pit, a kit to a school and he'll include, you know, polls, Essex polls with it exclusively Essex polls. Cause he really loves that we're doing Essex polls and that's it. That's all we do. Right. Right. Jeremy, what do you think? I was going to use that reference too. I mean, that's, that's kind of been the thing is, I mean, I think we're going to keep, you know, continuing to grow. Like, like Ty said, that leaves really kind of, we're constantly trying to evolve our, um, not necessarily evolve, but make, make our manufacturing more efficient. We built and added ovens. I feel like almost every year for the last three or four years. Um, And, and, you know, we still, or I feel like we've got a good design, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to look at new materials and, and better ways of doing things while keeping the basic principles of, of what we want it to feel like and keeping things consistent and having something that you can, can build off. That, that was kind of one of the hard parts early on as, you know, we changed flex systems and getting things to all like, what do we have and how do we marry these different lines of, of poles? And so I think, I think kind of, improving manufacturing to where we're a little more efficient and and continuing to grow but i think at the heart of it we're always going to be pole vaulters that are trying to get the best equipment out and you know we want to make an impact right i mean there's only right. so many ways you can do that in pole vault so i i think at least for mine i i, I can't speak for ty but we've talked about this um um before personally that like this is a great way for us to help other people um, 
get better equipment, more consistent poles that, and kind of pay back a sport that we've done. That's done so much for us both personally and professionally. Right. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, you guys are doing an incredible job. Um, is there anything else that you guys wanted to chat about or cover before we get off here? Yeah. I'd like to. Oh, keeps cutting that... out. <laughs> Oh, I'm it, up there we bit. go. There we go. You're good it, now. It, okay. Maybe it's, I was fiddling with my little, my little uh, plug connector for my headset. <laughs> Is that better? Can you hear yeah. me now? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to say something about um, a good friend who just passed oh, and uh, meant a lot to the pole vault community, oh. uh, Tim, Lo- Tim Lobinger. And I, I have very fond memories of, of, uh, of meeting Tim and him, just inviting me into into the German mix and being a such a like a big part of that community over there. So many good memories, and he always had just this huge smile and this just bigger than life kind of aura about him. And and everybody looked up to him in Germany. I mean, of course they had their little things, right? And like we all do, but but ultimately, such great respect for that guy. And, um, huge loss makes me very sad. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think about all the people that are really close to him over there suffering and it's through his loss. And so just, uh, yeah, shout out, shout out to, to Tim and, uh, and what he's meant to the community. Yeah. I, uh, I had posted something on Instagram about, uh, I had actually reached out to him maybe a couple years ago to see if he, if I could get him, you know, if he wanted to talk, uh, on the podcast or whatever and, and, and have that. Um, and that was one of the people that I was really, you know, hoping that I would be able to talk to, uh, just cause I grew up watching him and, and all those things. And, that was, uh, yeah, that's, it's just really sad, you know, and I forgive me, but what, what happened? Like was, did he have like cancer or something or? Yeah. He had a leukemia, I believe leukemia or lymphoma. Okay. Uh, blood cancer. But, and I, I, he, I understand that he was actually doing pretty well more recently, but then he developed like a, a lung infection uh, and, uh, yeah, that was what got him, I think. That's terrible. Yeah. I mean, he just, to, I mean, I didn't get to compete or, or probably didn't know him as well as Ty did, but I think that kind of, I'll give you one story about him. I mean, I I went over there. I was still pretty early on. It's only maybe my second or third time competing in Europe. And uh, my polls got lost. Um, and we made a few calls and he had an extra set of polls his agent got a hold of him. He was already on the way to this meet that we were competing at. And he said, I'll go back and get mine. So he turned around, went and got him from, uh, at that point, I think it was still Leverkusen. He may have been down in Munich by that point, but he turned around and went and got him, and then came and like brought him to the meet for me and let me use him for the rest of my trip there. And, um, I was trying to figure out a way to, to get him at the end of my trip. And he's like, no, I'll come and get him." And, and then he gave me a ride to the airport, like oh my just gosh. like he's at this point, you know, six meter man, world champion. And I just, just starting to break in on some of the circuit stuff. And 
Like wow. that's how he was treating me and just always, yeah. like Ty said, always a big smile and just a big personality and just hilarious, um, a hilarious yeah. guy, but, but would go out of his way literally for you to, to kind of, I mean, he knew how hard we had it with the travel and uh, I mean, it just was, yeah. he left a big impression on me. Let's put it that way early on in my professional career. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people, it sounds like, uh, you know, that's, that's just so sad. You know, you just, I don't know, those it's sad stuff happens, you know, in this world and, and it's, uh, it's just hard, you know, you have somebody that was a six meter pole vaulter and then, you know, dies young like that. It's like, you're at the peak of what a human can do. And then, you know, mm -hmm. that happens. It's just, uh, really sad, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Tim Lobinger and, and, uh, yeah, he'll, he won't ever be forgotten. He's on that six meter list. So <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's a really good thing to be on, man. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good thing to be on, but yeah. Anyway, uh, is there is there anything else that you guys wanted to to talk about before we got off here? Man, I I just I would love to. I, I this podcast has got me thinking about all the people <laughs> in yeah. my life that have you know touched me in some way, yeah. and like I remember like Karen Locke taking a chance on me as her first pole vault. Uh, she was my manager, my my manager, and like I remember her like. <laughs> taking like just a huge step into the unknown with me and it turned out great. And she still manages pole vaulters, the best in the world. And she does oh, yeah. an amazing yeah. job. And, and then Mark Ozenberg, like, man, and, and like Lars introducing me to his coach at the time who became my manager for a minute. And like the whole, everybody that's, and then like the most important thing in my whole track career that happened is is i met my wife you know it's yeah. like holy cow <laughs> like i have kids and a wife because of track and field and pole vault and like yeah. that's that's the most important thing that's ever happened to me and it's because track led us to that moment at world championships where we she pinched my butt in an interview and hey. that like and that like lit the fire right like <laughs> yeah, Kelly Kelly Suttle was a part of that. Like she's like, yeah, she was egging my wife on. So probably she wouldn't have done it had it not been for Kelly. But man, it's just like my whole life has been enriched. It's really cool. I, you know, to be honest with you, I feel very, very fortunate being in the position that I'm in. Uh, we have our facility, uh, the Rise Pole Vault Training Center, and and we work with so many kids. And I was talking with somebody the other day about how I feel so fortunate because there'll be a kid that comes in like, uh, hey, I'm a senior. Uh, somebody told me that I should pull all, you know, like, and it's like, uh, you know, is there, you think, you know, I should do this. And then we take them and then like six months later, they're getting like division one scholarship offers. And it's just like their, their, their path through life was going this way. And then all of a sudden, boom, just gets kicked off this way. <laughs> and it's like, that just completely changed everything for you. You know, like yeah. six months ago, you didn't even know what the pullout was. And then now 
you have this thing that you've been introduced to, and now your life is going to go off in a whole different way. And the coolest part is whenever you get a kid that, you know, you can just kind of tell didn't have as much going for them, you know, mm-hmm. and then it's like, it's just so cool. It is, it is really wild when you look back on, you know, both, both you guys can look back on your lives and I can look back on my life and just be like, wow, like pole vaulting legitimately is my livelihood right now. My job right now is to try and make a really cool pole vaulting experience for a bunch of kids, you know, and, and to put out these podcasts and to, you know, do all those sorts of things. And, it is really wild how the little sport of of pole vaulting has has done so much for in everybody's lives, you know. And I just believe in it a lot, you know. I just believe mm-hmm. in it. Like it's like everybody that I talk to, and I say what I do for my living. They're like, oh, you know, that the initial thought is just like. That is the dumbest. This kid, he must be freaking <laughs> stupid. And I don't know. I think that's part of the chip that's always been on my shoulder, though. Like, I'm not trying to say this like to be cocky or anything, but like, I could have been a football player. I could have been a basketball player. I could have been anything that I wanted to be. And I probably would have been pretty good at it. But I chose pole vaulting, you know? And every time that I would tell somebody, like, somebody well i i do this you know they'd be like oh you don't play football or you don't play basketball you know it's like yeah well it is what it is you know we you know always getting the short end of the stick on who gets field house time and you know all of these things and and i'm still coming up against you know whenever we went to go put our uh bid in to lease this property you know you you know what's coming because they're going to ask you what you're doing. <laughs> I want to, I want to start a pole vaulting gym here. Yeah. They're like, you can't make, you can't make enough money to do that. You can't make enough money to pay for this rent. I'm like, give me a freaking chance, man. Give me a freaking chance. And I'll show you, I'll show you what we can do. You know, I'll yeah. show you what this community can do because what you guys are talking about, what Ty was talking about and is, is a community that, uh, might be stronger than some of those other sports. Those other sports might have popularity, but I don't know if they have the same community. Like the, our community is really strong, you know. That's and that's Man, what's so powerful about it. You you're affecting thousands of kids' lives in a very profound way, Jake, with what you're yeah. you know with what's going on, and like that's that is a. Like, what could more could you ask for in life than to have an impact? And th- right. we're making massive impacts on these kids' lives, you know. And and a shout out to our elite athletes like Sam Kendricks. What what sport? What what professional sport in this world has Olympic medalists, American record holders, those the best in the world accessible? Mondo, he's accessible. Like, holy right. Where else is that going to happen? Right, and like, and it takes. It takes pole vaulters to be with other pole vaulters to be successful. It's not a sport you can just do, you know, you, you have, it takes a village, right? And like, it's a dangerous thing. It can be risky. So like, there's that element of like, Hey, I need somebody's help to catch my steps. So I don't monkey roll or end up on my head. Like <laughs> right. the, the community has to, has to, has to help each other. And it's like this communal thing. And man, it's like our elite athletes 
are incredible. Like Sam Kendricks, he does so much for the sport and Chris Nielsen. And, you know, I mean, I, the list is, it's unbelievable. We're we're so fortunate at Essex also to have this incredible group of elite athletes. Really incredible group. Like Katie Najat. Oh my God. These athletes are just killing it. And they're so accessible and doing things for the community. And it's like, just to pay it forward is, is, is immense. And it's, it's pretty neat to be a part of all that. It is absolutely outstanding. Um, gentlemen, it's been a really awesome, awesome time. Uh, is there anywhere that Ty, I do follow you on Instagram and I love watching your little arc, your architectural uh, <laughs> videos. I really do. I love whenever a new Ty Harvey build gets posted up uh, on He's Instagram. He's awesome, isn't he? Yeah, Thanks, it's, so, it's so Thank cool. Uh, yeah, so if you're interested in that, uh, what what is that Instagram handle, Ty? Ty Harvey Enterprises. Ty Harvey Enterprises. And then, Jeremy, is there... Do you uh, do the social media thing or do you... Uh, <laughs> do a little bit i think it's more for uh watching my wife post uh post <laughs> pictures of my own kids <laughs> right um but el grande usa is my um is my instagram awesome awesome um well thank you guys so much i i know this was a big chunk of your day and i really enjoyed the conversation and uh yeah so thank you guys thank so much you for coming on thank you for Man, having thanks. us on Absolutely. Super fun to take, to take those memories and kind of bring them forward. You know, they're, they were getting dusty back there a little bit. So it's fun, (laughs) really fun. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And this is the one more jump podcast. See you guys later.